1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best to fight back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's one of the key numbers in many household budgets, the hydro bill. You'll remember in the last election campaign, Doug Ford promised to lower those rates by 12%. But instead of going down, hydro rates are up. A new report from the Fraser Institute finds that between April of last year and April this year, the cost of household electricity in Toronto increased by 5 percent, and Ontario residents are paying on average 22 percent more than those in the rest of the country. Libby discussed the findings with Fraser Institute's Ken Green, opposition energy critic Peter Tabin's, and political columnist Brian Lilly.
2: Well, simply put, it's because there were some bad decisions made in the past regarding managing Ontario's energy system, shifting the balance of power away from coal toward natural gas, and then having some trouble getting the natural gas done. Also, there's a a shift toward renewable power, which in the part of your power bill that's called the global adjustment, Mm
3: -hmm. uh,
2: the renewables are 34% of that part of your bill. And yet they produce a very small amount of electricity in Ontario. And so those keep going up. And that ripples through your your hydro bill. Uh, but it's not the actual cost of generating power. It's it's a bit of a grab bag of renewables plus maintenance things for different parts of the system plus decisions that were made to cancel contracts or cancel gas plants or uh, end coal power. So it's a, it's a, and retire them. So there's a lot in the global adjustment, but that's where your bill is going up.
4: Ken, where does this leave us?
2: Well, I think it leaves, it leaves the province with a, with a, continuing challenge to bring its power bills down. If your large power consumers, and that's going to be your industrial base, are paying 65% more on average than the rest of Canada, that's a real pressure on capital and, and, and the flow, outflow of industrial and manufacturing processes to places where the power costs. And so to be competitive and to stay competitive with these in, the industries that, that have high power demand really somehow they have to find ways to bring down the cost of power. Just giving subsidies to one group or another, I wouldn't wouldn't agree with. But bringing down the overall cost of power, I think by changing the mix and, and addressing the renewable contracts is probably where they need to go. It will take some time.
4: Now I would like to bring in Peter Tabbins, who is the NDP energy critic, and Brian Lilly, who is a columnist, from with the Toronto Sun what do you make of the Fraser Institute report
5: for me this is just a continuation of the story under the Liberals I mean they were really bad on energy Uh, I don't think anyone's gonna make an argument to the contrary Uh, but what's happened is that Doug Ford has just continued on Uh, in fact As people can see from rising prices, things are getting worse. He's not willing to take on the privatization, which is draining a lot of money out of Ontario. He's not willing to stand up for customers when Hydro One holds on to a $2.6 billion gift that the Liberals gave them when they privatized them. Uh, And I don't see any action, frankly, on the promise he made to lower bills by a further 12%. I asked him about that in the legislature the other day. And what I got was a lot of mumbling and gobbledygook. I mean, they they have no concrete plan for actually bringing this under control. That's pretty obvious. If they had it, uh, you have to ask, well, why aren't they applying it?
4: Is this uh, another case where maybe uh, Doug Ford promised, you know, more than he could actually deliver?
6: It really could be. And Uh, But this is a promise that he has to deliver on. And I may be completely opposed to the idea of borrowing money to, you know, subsidize bills over the long term. I think hydro rates should be lower, but is that the right way to do it? It goes against my political instincts, but the premier promised it. And it was a major promise in the election campaign to deal with hydro rates. Now, they've had some luck. Peter may disagree with some of it, but they have had some luck. The crazy... Uh, increases that we were seeing under the Liberals have stopped. Some of the bad contracts that were given out that they could get out of were canceled. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, But you're still getting uh, up 5% or 12%, depending on how you measure it. This, uh, oh, sorry, it was 12% promise. It's up 5% annually. Most recently, a regulated 1.8% increase. Well, that's going up, not down, and and he's got to reverse it. So the premier has spoken to this since my first column a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he says, look, this is the toughest file, speaking to his people on background, they say that yes, they will still get to this, but it is one of the most complex files going, and let's be honest, it's been bungled by every single party.
4: Peter Tabbins, your prediction, is this going to be your path to power?
5: (laughs) Um, you know, I think that, that Ford made a promise that he had no idea how he would keep and is breaking faith with people. Uh, the liberals were really bad on this file. Ford is turning out to be worse. And I think people will be very angry and very bitter about the state of things in the next few years because these bills are headed
1: up. The Fraser Institute's Ken Green, opposition energy critic Peter Tabins and political columnist Brian Lilly. You're listening to the best of Fight back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The old saying goes that only two things are inevitable, death and taxes. But what is not cast in stone is how much of your hard-earned money will go to the CRA as opposed to your loved ones and your favorite charities. Making sure the most cash gets to the right place takes some planning. Joining Libyan Studio with his top tips financial planner, Mark Halpern, CEO of WealthInsurance.com. They don't want to talk about
7: death and they certainly don't want to talk about taxes. I know every year when tax season rolls around, it's not my favorite subject with with accountants, but this is really a, about estate taxes. You know, we all have taxes as we're alive, our income taxes, our HST, gas tax, tobacco, whatever. But uh, most Canadians are not aware of the fact that there's a big tax bill um, upon death in, in Canada, in Ontario as well. And once they realize that it gets their attention because the good news is they could do some planning to actually preserve their estate for their family or charities they care about. But it requires doing some planning as opposed to investing.
4: Okay. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting that that's called the, it's called the final. Tax return,
7: da 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 da. <laughs> the terminal return. It the sounds very Star Trek, you know, or some yeah. So so just to, as a very very high level, you know, you can meet somebody who has a five million dollar net worth, but they don't realize that that net worth might only be worth three million to their family. Why? Because if you have any registered money meaning RSPs or RIFs, and you don't have a spouse to roll that over to on a tax-free basis, then the government wants 54% of anything over $220,000. That means if you have a million dollar RSP or RIF, that means the government's getting 540,000 of that and your family gets 460. You could also have uh, appreciated investment real estate, not your principal residence, but real estate or an investment portfolio that's appreciated or a business, and the government is going to want 27% of the gains on that. And then if you have any money in a holding company and you need to get it out to your family, there's a potential dividend tax or a double tax there of 47% or more. And then, of course, you also have probate taxes, one and a half percent. So you really need to sort of dig a little deeper. You get some crystallization in terms of what are your taxes so that you can actually deal with it now while the sun is shining and and use some assets that you're not spending, you're just paying taxes on to actually preserve your state.
4: Yeah. It's a lot to think about. It's It's a lot to pay out. And I guess, it's an unpleasant thing to think about and then other people think well hey it's not going to be my problem is it
7: right so that's mm-hmm. you know there're two types of people there in life there are people who care and then there are people who don't care if you're somebody who cares then you'll give this some attention. And and the good news is it it's not that painful. It just requires having a, a frank conversation with a professional like myself, or a, you know, somebody who specializes in estate planning, a certified financial planner, and actually have that conversation now so that they uh they can take care of these things and have a lot more flexibility and options.
4: There's a thing at death a deemed disposition right so the government says that when you pass away they will deem that you're you're selling everything at that point right
7: correct not only will they say you sold it all at that point remember if you have a spouse yeah so then there's a tax free spousal rollover roll to the surviving spouse it's on the second to die of a husband and wife that's why any of your listeners really specifically anyone who's a single Divorced or widowed person, then yeah, there is a deemed disposition upon their death, and the government assumes they've sold everything at fair market value. And that's the note, that's sort of the benchmark for where they say, here's what you paid for it, or here's what it's worth today, the market value, here's what you paid for it. And depending on if it's a, if it's a capital gain or if it's a, a tax, the taxes can be anywhere between 27 and 54%.
4: Is there anything else you want to leave us with?
7: Uh, just again, it's, you know, Timing is everything. We make our uh, RSP contributions on March the 1st because there's a deadline. deadline. We pay taxes on April 30th because there's a deadline. deadline. If we don't put a deadline to this, then it never gets done and and we're worse for wear on that. So I have like a bit of a 72-hour rule. If anybody's been listening and says, hey, this makes sense, do something within the next 72 hours. Otherwise, what happens is (laughs) we're back to sleep.
4: And I know you're looking at me.
6: Yeah. (laughs)
7: Maybe, I think the only reason you keep inviting me back here is so that eventually you'll take
1: care of all those things too. Stop blushing. <laughs> okay. I can see the blush. Financial planner Mark Halpern, CEO of WealthInsurance.com. I'm Bob Comsick and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Imagine you or a loved one has to go in for surgery. Of all the things you worry about, and there are many, having, say, a sponge, a scalpel, or... Rubber glove left inside your body is probably the last thing you think about. Well, think again. The past two years, 553 foreign objects were left behind in patients after surgery. That's a 14% hike in the rate over five years and twice the average rate of 12 other reporting countries. Tracy Johnson of the Canadian Institute for Health Information, which conducted the study, as well as Sandy Cossie of the Canadian Patient Safety Institute, and Linda Hughes, co-chair of Patients for Patient Safety Canada, joined Libby Nimer to discuss.
8: We've been comparing ourselves to the OECD for a while now, so we have understood that patient safety is one of those areas where we are Lagging behind. We've seen some improvement in some of the indicators, but generally for the OB trauma and tears, for post op complications like blood clots and foreign body left in, we are below the OECD average. Let's go to uh, Linda. Were you surprised? Uh, no, I was not surprised at all. And in fact, um, these statistics show a small part of the story regarding the crisis we have in Canada related to preventable harm. Um, we have about 28,000 deaths per year in Canada that could be prevented. So these are just some of the examples. Uh, but I do want to talk a bit about, like two months ago, a friend died of a preventable lung clot after a knee replacement. So so sorry, after a knee replacement, which mm-hmm. is
4: considered so a pretty routine. Stats,
8: uh, you know, I guess he's one of those. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, another friend had an uneventful recovery from a knee replacement, and his quality of life has drastically improved. So it's not every knee pla- knee trans knee knee uh, replacement or hip replacement that ends up in blood clots. They can be prevented, and it's unfortunate that they're not.
4: Okay, Sandy, uh, your take. Were you surprised by this number?
9: No, we were not surprised. Unfortunately although we do know there's been a a great deal of work and a lot of improvement efforts right across the country to ensure high-quality, safe health care for the people that expect and deserve it. Um, But unfortunately, sometimes these things do happen, and this data is an opportunity for improvement. So great that Canada is collecting such information and robust information through the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and this is just a, a, a big, strong signal for us to start focusing our improvement efforts based on this alarming data.
8: How would you start to address this? Um, I think we need the public to really understand that we do have uh, safety issues in our healthcare care system. And if the public begin to understand this, a couple of things will happen, I think. The, first of all, there will be an outcry, and our politicians and everybody else who you know, sets policies and regulations and does funding, etc., will pay attention if the public starts to have an outcry about this situation. So I think that's very important. But also, I think when the public is more aware of, um, you know, that there are safety concerns, I think that they perhaps themselves will take a different approach to um, obtaining health care and start to think about what they can do as well to to try and keep themselves safe. And there are some things that people can do. Um, unfavorable reactions to medications are often a cause of harm, um, especially in older people who are taking many, multiple medications. And so I think we all need to take responsibility to know what medications we're on and ask about can we get off some of them and ask about how they should be monitored and ask about what are the interactions between all of these medications. And one of the things that Patients for Patient Safety Canada has been involved in in developing is, uh, a little poster called Five Questions to Ask About Your Medications and there are, uh, five questions that I guess we developed a couple of years ago along with CPSI and the Institute for Safe Medication Practice. I see it everywhere I am in Winnipeg when I'm in an elevator in a hospital where, um, on you know, posters everywhere and my understanding is, is that it has you know, been translated into 30 or 40 languages, it's being spread across the country. Um, That's an important one example I'd like to give about how we ourselves can start to take some responsibility ourselves as well.
1: Tracy Johnson of the Canadian Institute for Health Information, Sandy Cossey of the Canadian Patient Safety Institute, and Linda Hughes, co chair of Patients for Patient Safety Canada. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back, I'm Bob Comsick. And down the street at City Hall, there was the shocking news that City Councillor Jim Karagiannis has been removed from office for overspending during last year's municipal election. The City of Toronto's Chief Communications Officer, Brad Ross, told Libby how the decision was reached.
3: It comes from the Municipal Elections Act, actually. It's not a, a, a city uh, bylaw or or any kind of city piece of legislation or policy. It is actually a provincial legis- piece of legislation that applies to all municipalities in Ontario that leaves the city clerk with uh, no latitude or discretion in how it is applied and what the penalty is uh, for uh, filing uh, expenses over what is allowed. If on the face of the form uh, you have... Uh, declared that you've spent more than what is allowed uh, for parties in this case, then the penalty is forfeiture of office. And so the city clerk um, has an obligation under the act to, um, to, uh, to exercise that, uh, that penalty.
4: How long has this law been in effect?
3: This particular section of the act was amended in 2016. So uh, oh. it was in place uh, prior to the 2018 election. So it has been in place for
4: about three years now. Okay so it's fairly new and uh, as far as i can recall never been enacted before am i right there
3: well because it is so new and this is the first election uh, in Toronto since this particular section of the act was amended it uh, no it, this is the first and but you know yes it is a first generally with respect to uh, whatever other penalties may be imposed on a on a sitting uh, sitting elected official uh, it's first for, for Toronto as far as uh, we're aware
4: so he says he's going to go through the courts, which apparently is his only recourse. Is there a good chance that, that the taxpayers are going to end up paying for that legal battle? And, and how long would you figure it's going to take to resolve that?
3: Well, there's there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know, around that. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure what uh, what financial obligations the city would have. Uh, again, as I said, the city clerk was was is simply, um, I mean, simply might be a simple word, but is simply uh, exercising her obligations uh, under the Municipal Election Act, and uh, so any recourse uh, financial or legal that that Mr. Karygiannis has uh, is. is Is really up to him. But uh, perhaps that will change. I I really don't know. But at this point, uh, it is uh, it is in his uh, the the ball is in his court, so to speak.
4: So in terms of what happens with the constituents, uh, who is it that would get to appoint an interim councillor or you have a by-election?
3: So right. So a couple of things. So today, um, the staff in Mr. Car in 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 that office in Ward twenty in that Ward twenty two office are carrying out their duties as they were yesterday and the day before, responding to constituent needs. Um, and and city staff, of course, will continue to respond as as we do to to all residents who have, uh, you know, service uh, requests and those types of things. Those will all, of course, continue. The staff will uh, administratively report to the city clerk's office uh, until council makes a decision uh, whether to appoint or hold a by-election. So at the November 26th meeting of council, the city clerk, um, what will happen, city clerk will, will provide a report to council where they will then uh, officially declare that seat vacant, and then they'll have 60 days to decide whether to appoint. Um, a councillor to that uh, to that ward, or to hold a by election, and so that will that that'll be a few more months before that uh, those next steps are determined. But in the meantime, the residents of Ward Twenty Two will continue to uh, receive service as they did uh, as they have you know prior to yesterday.
4: Now, of course, uh, when the number of wards was reduced in the last election, Carrigianus beat out Norm Kelly. But I gather there is perhaps already a draft Nor- Ke- Norm Kelly movement under. Underway,
3: I couldn't speak to that at all, Libby. I I, I don't know.
4: Okay. Uh, anything else we need to know? No, I think I think we covered it, Libby. I mean,
3: as I say, the Municipal Election Act is uh, is is the legislation that guides all municipalities in Ontario, and the City Clerk uh, was exercising her obligations under the Act yesterday.
1: City of Toronto spokesperson Brad Ross. I'm Bob comsick. This is Zuma Radio's best to fight back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio and here are some of the best calls of the week. Case and Callinan called to say he's had enough of time changes and wants to go to daylight saving time permanently.
9: With uh, BC all the way, I think if you take the same vote in Ontario, you'd probably get the same response with more people wanting daylight saving time permanently. I just would like the extra time at night to do some work outside, Uh, and I think um, that's a pretty good argument.
1: (laughs) Ernie and Peterborough phoned in to share his medical nightmare.
9: I had uh, some bowel surgery for cancer, and it was apparently successfully uh, reconnected. However, (laughs) I wasn't recovering, and after several days, the CAT scan found that they'd left a towel in me. Oh,
4: my goodness. They rushed me into
9: surgery, removed the towel... But at the same time, apparently, because the towel was beginning to adhere, um, it disturbed the sutures of the surgery. So they had to give me a third surgery. Of course, the surgery came in and said, uh, you know, never happened in 14 years. And I'm very sorry. Uh, I appreciate mistakes happen. But a towel wasn't a sponge. It was a towel. I've lost a year of my life. And uh, those things that I would like to do, and I would think I'll be seeking legal advice to do so.
1: Linda from Scarborough also wanted to talk about patient safety.
8: I'm a former OR nurse and OR recovery manager. And these protocols have actually been in place for over 40 years, a pre-count and post-count. When people come into surgery, when they leave surgery, if there's a miscount, a double count is done. And after the double count, if something is still missing, then an x-ray is done before the patient leaves recovery room. Those are the protocols that we followed. I'm hoping that most of those mistakes are made when there's a a dire emergency in the operating room people are kind of flustered. That's the only thing I can eat because no matter what happens, those protocols have to be followed. So the numbers should be fairly low, but that's the only time I could see it happening. But hopefully protocols are followed, and I think that would be the main thing to stress is to follow those protocols, and if you have a miscount, do the x ray before the person goes to the recovery room so they can be re examined before they're closed up.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Diane in Toronto, who called to say she's decided she'll always get the flu shot on an annual basis.
8: I'm 70, 70 years old. And, um, I hesitated for a lot of years, decades even, to getting, getting the flu shot because I had two bad reactions to it. And I remember phoning your show a few years ago, and I forget whether it was you or Jane that very gently suggested it'd be a good thing to, uh, you know, talk to my doctor about it. I had one last year without any reaction whatsoever. So I'm going to see my doctor this Wednesday and I'm going to, I'm going to go for this, this flu shot again. You know, I just built up this fear in my mind that it wouldn't be a good thing. And uh, I had no problem with it, and uh, I'm all ready to go again.
1: That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back knockout call of the week, phone us from noon to 1 weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend for a roundup of the best of
0: Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.